Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Supreme Court's stay on the abortion pill case, keeping medication abortion legal for a while, which brought a blistering dissent from Justices Alito and Thomas, and we'll eventually go back to the conservative Fifth Circuit and likely the Supreme Court. With both Alito and Thomas having the opposite of a judicial temperament, as both are bitter and angry men, we'll look into the tensions within the High Court faced with growing unpopularity and diminishing credibility, as well as unanswered questions about Justice Thomas's disregard for ethics and the Supreme Court's lack of a code of ethics. Joining us is James Zirin, a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television talk show Conversations with Jim Zirin, which airs on PBS. He is the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tipped the Scales in the United States Supreme Court and Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits, a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly. His latest article is Clarence Thomas's vacation scandal shouldn't fade from memory. Then we'll assess the change in the public support away from the well-founded, politically connected, vocal and often fanatical minority wanting more guns and no restrictions in favor of the rights of the majority of Americans to be free from gun massacres happening almost daily in schools, churches, malls and theaters. Joining us is Ryan Bussey a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award. He is an environmental advocate who served in many leadership roles for conservation organizations, including as an advisor for the United States Senate Sportsman's Caucus and the Biden presidential campaign. Currently, he provides consulting services to progressive organizations, with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization. He is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Then finally, with the focus now on getting U.S., European, and Chinese nationals out of Sudan, while average Sudanese citizens face starvation and bombs and bullets from a fratricidal war between two warlords tearing the country apart to grab all the spoils, We'll speak with Leko Tongan, who is a professor of international and intercultural studies and political studies at Pitzer College. He was born and raised in Sudan, now South Sudan, and his publications include Pan-Africanism and Apartheid, African-American Influences on U.S. Foreign Policy, and The Political Economy of National Planning in Sudan, Determinants of Choices and Priorities, and he's working on a book titled Planning the Tragedies, Political Economy of Development Policies, Genocides, and the Breakup of Sudan. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is James Aaron, who's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television talk show Conversations with Jim Aaron, which airs on PBS. He's the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tips the Scale in the United States Supreme Court, and Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. He's a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly, and his latest article is Clarence Thomas's vacation scandal shouldn't fade from memory. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Zarin. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Ian, and thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> well, you've earned it. So, Jim, obviously the situation within the privacy of the Supreme Court in those hallowed chambers where they're supposed to be collegiality, when they thrash out differences and come up with a vote. It's been going on in the last few days over the abortion pill, and it seems apparently that things got really contentious to the point where Justice Thomas and Alito wrote a scathing minority opinion, if you will, with the rest of them agreeing to put a stay on the outrageous decision by this anti-abortion zealot who's now a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas. So I understand, and we don't know for sure, but I understand that Alito is really getting, you know, he's very thin-skinned. Maybe he's, he's upset, and some people think it is because of the reaction to the Dobbs decision, which he wrote. But apparently he and, and Lena Kagan are getting, getting into some pretty serious arguments. Are you hearing anything along those lines? Um, I haven't heard of that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all because they're so diametrically uh, opposed ideologically uh, and um, in, in terms of uh, uh, judicial doctrine, they're opposed uh, to uh, this degree that uh, Alito's uh, dissent on the abortion pill case uh, and his opinion about stays on the rocket docket was um, so his position uh, in dissent was uh, diametrically opposed to his uh, uh, position uh, on other uh, applications for stay that came before the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, he's uh, he's clearly coming at his decisions uh, from an ideological direction rather than from a legal direction. But how does, I mean, I guess it's a crazy question, really. To, to How does his mind work? I, I'm trying to put it, phrase it in a better way. But you recall when Obama did a State of the Union, when he just after the Citizens United decision, and Obama was saying what a catastrophe that decision will be and how dark money will pour into our politics and poison our politics and how foreign governments can pour money into our politics, which is, of course, what happened in 2016 with the Russians and the Saudis supporting Trump. And there in the the run representative for the Supreme Court in the Congress was, of course, Alito at the time, and he mouthed not true. Well, there's no question that Citizens United is a catastrophic decision. It's no question that Heller, Scalia's decision on guns, has proved to be catastrophic. 
And certainly you could argue that the Dobbs decision is catastrophic for American women, but it's at the very least it's deeply unpopular. So where do these guys live? Where do their minds inhabit? Um, well, I mean, one of the uh, uh, issues is whether their uh, constitutional thinking is informed by their Roman Catholic faith. I mean, you have a court where um, the, uh, all of the justices, uh, with the exception of uh, Kagan and Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson, uh, are Catholic. Uh, and um, because of uh, their uh, religious beliefs, are opposed to abortion. And uh, they think it's a sin. They think it's murder. And um, that... Uh, you have to conclude, informs uh, their doctrinal approach to uh, these uh, reproductive rights issues. But in the current case, which is now, there's a stay on the Mifepristone ban nationwide, but it's going to go back to the Fifth Circuit, which is incredibly conservative, and it may actually end up back at the Supreme Court. So where do they come down on the choice between their moral crusade against abortion and their laissez-faire support of laissez-faire capitalism for like for big pharma, for example, because the decision's going to totally screw up the FDA. Well, I think uh, first they have to approach it legally, and there's a question as to whether these doctors have standing to bring the lawsuit in the first place. These are doctors who will not uh, because of religious belief or moral conviction, will not prescribe uh, the um, anti uh, the abortion pill, uh, and uh, since they uh, themselves will not prescribe it, it's hard to see how they are aggrieved parties uh, who have st legal standing to bring uh, the lawsuit to begin with. Now they may all go off on that ground, and then they won't have to confront uh, this ideological issue. If they decide that the doctors do have standing, then uh, it's a question of uh, how they come out where you have uh, two decades of uh, uh, use and experience with the, with the pill uh, and it's been um, proven to be safe both in practice and in the opinion of the regulatory agency, the FDA. Now, a lot of these justices don't like uh, regulation. They don't like regulatory agencies. Uh, but they really have to live with that fact. And so uh, the uh, I suspect that uh, because of uh, what um, they did in uh, extending the stay for uh, just a period of, uh, I think it's 59 or 60 days before uh, uh, there's a hearing in the Fifth Circuit uh, for this brief period that uh, it's pretty much a signal to the lower court that uh, they're going to uh, permit the pill if the matter is ever reached on the merits. So when you mentioned the conservative Catholic majority, there's seven Catholics, but Sotomayor is, is of more of the liberal Catholic persuasion, if you will. The rest of them, most of them, are actually chosen by Leonard Leo, who shows up in the portrait in the billionaire's resort up in the Adirondacks, the guy that's been funding Clarence Thomas's lavish vacations, in spite of the fact that Clarence Thomas made a 
documentary that was actually financed by Harlan Crow, who's apparently got an affection for Nazi memorabilia and has a signed copy of Mein Kampf and a couple of Hitler's paintings, along with statues of dictators in his backyard. There's a painting of Thomas Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo of the Fitherus Society there at Harlan Crow's retreat in the Adirondacks. And the one guy that's shaped our federal judiciary, and particularly our Supreme Court, is none other than Leonard Leo, who is an ultra-conservative, Opus Dei Catholic. So how did we end up with six of these Opus Dei people on the Supreme Court that don't represent a diversity in American religion, let alone within Catholicism itself? Well, I don't know that they're Opus Dei people, but although I think Opus Dei would probably agree with the principles that uh, they have adopted. Um, But um, the problem is uh, that the Constitution doesn't mention abortion. Although abortion was freely practiced at the time of the Constitution, uh, and it was only in the 19th century uh, that uh, the um, um, religious political ideologues took the position that abortion was a sin and there ought to be legislation in the various states. It wasn't in every state, but in most states, uh, banning abortion, period. Not after a uh, month, not after three months. It was, a, it was illegal and doctors who performed abortion were subject to uh, criminal penalties and women who had abortions performed were subject to criminal penalties. Then you had Roe v. Wade, which was I guess, a 1973 decision. Interestingly enough, it would not have been possible uh, without the votes of justices who had been appointed by Republican presidents, uh, principally uh, Blackman and Berger and Powell, uh, who were in the majority. Um, but uh, And then Roe v. Wade stood uh, for, I guess, 30 years, and uh, well, 40 years, and... Um, I'm sorry, stood for almost 50 years. 50 years, yeah. And, yeah, almost 50 years. And um, then they uh, completely revised it uh, by overruling Roe v. Wade. Now, Roe v. Wade um, was a precedent, a settled precedent. It had been reaffirmed in the Casey case. And um, as a, uh, uh, it was called in the United States Senate a super precedent, precedent. Uh, which Chief Justice Roberts agreed that it was. And one of the principles of constitutional interpretation, a legal principle, is you stand by your decisions. You don't overrule precedents. Well, uh, Justice Kavanaugh in the oral argument said, well, um, we overruled um, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, the school segregation case in Brown v. Board of Education, and uh, we other cases that... Uh, uh, said you could uh, uh, condemn um, uh, homosexual acts uh, between consenting adults, and that was overruled in uh, Lawrence v. Texas. And um, then we, in Obersfeld, we, uh, they said uh, five to four that you could, uh, there was a constitutional right to gay marriage based on a right of decency in the Constitution. And um, uh, Kavanaugh wondered, well, uh, be a very different country today if they hadn't overruled those decisions. But in overruling those decisions, uh, they created a right um, and uh, overruled decisions which had denied a right. In uh, the case of uh, the Dobbs decision, uh, they did something else. They extinguished a right 
which had existed for half a century. And that's what's really was so extraordinary about it. So that's a peculiar double standard, isn't it? It's okay no, to yes, it is. it's a, get rid of a right, because even if it's a terrible right, you keep it going? It's like they must support Jim Crow then. Well, it, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the logical extension of what they did, although they professed that uh, the reasoning would only apply to abortion and not to anything else, uh, but uh, the logical extension of what they did is they might one day uh, uh, affirm abortion, uh, affirm Jim, Jim Crowism, um, uh, separation of the races. All right. Well, I wish I knew exactly whether they, all six were Opus Day, but Opus Day is a secretive organization. But the point still made that this is not a court that represents the diversity in the United States, let alone the diversity within the Catholic faith. Yes, I think that's that's exactly right. And just in closing, what do you think that can be done about Thomas? Uh, well, at first I, I just wanted to point out that um, Alito in his dissent in the abortion pill case said, quote, the majority is wrongly granting emergency relief in a case in which I'm not convinced the criteria are satisfied. But only on April 6th of last year, he said, um, we should, I quote him, we should grant emergency relief because we should put aside the reasons why the criteria are not satisfied. So what he argued for in, in this case was completely at odds with uh, what he uh, said um, as recently as April 6th, I, I should say April 6th of this year in uh, the West Virginia, the uh, RPI case. Right. So uh, now Clarence Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, is a justice of the Supreme Court. The justices of the Supreme Court are uh, exempt from the canons of judicial ethics. They are, however, subject to the Ethics and Government Act, which was passed uh, after Watergate, and that required disclosure of certain types of transactions. Thomas was required to uh, disclose all real estate transactions, whether it was a profit or a loss. He neglected to do so, and of course there was the real estate transaction where he sold uh, property to Harlan Crow, I think for several hundred thousand dollars, uh, and then that's where Thomas's mother lived, and then Crow uh, renovated the property, um, and uh, at his expense, uh, that transaction was unreported. Thomas uh, repeatedly traveled on Crow's private airplane, uh, which was a trend. Each transaction was one that had to be reported. And in fact, the first time uh, that Thomas did it, uh, he did report it. And then he stopped reporting it. He said that other people advised him that he didn't have to report it. Well, the other people uh, might have been uh, his colleague, Justice Scalia, who traveled on Air Force Two with Dick Cheney on a hunting trip and didn't disclose it. And Scalia said, well, I traveled on a governmental plane, but had I traveled on a private plane, I would have been compelled to disclose it. And um, uh, so I, he certainly didn't consult with Justice Scalia about uh, the right. obligation to disclose. So, uh, and then, of course, it's the appearance of uh, uh, cruising on a super yacht to uh, Indonesia. And uh, every uh, summer, uh, spending time, as you pointed out, at uh, Harlan's, uh, at uh, Harlan Crow's uh, 
uh, estate in the Adirondacks where he rubbed shoulders with with other conservatives. Now, he's entitled to have friendships. People usually have friendships with uh, uh, those who agree with him politically, or often do, but he was entitled to do that. But to do it, to go on a private plane there and and, and stay there at um, uh, Harlan Crow's expense uh, was something that had the appearance of impropriety when the people with whom he was meeting had litigation interests before the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, then you have the fact that, that uh, Harlan Crow um, set up a foundation uh, and Thomas's wife was an employee of the foundation and received a salary uh, with money that came from Harlan Crow. Now, how much money or things of value does he have to get from Harlan Crow, who had litigation interests before the Supreme Court, before there's an appearance of impropriety? And here there's a gross appearance of impropriety, and nothing really seems to be done about it, and nothing is likely to be done about it. Well, James Iron, I thank you for joining us. I I appreciate your knowledge here, and uh, I do hope that something is done about it. Okay, thanks so very much. Delighted to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with James Iron, who's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and the host of the critically acclaimed television talk show Conversation with Jim Zirin, which airs on PBS. He's the author of Supremely Partisan, How Raw Politics Tipped the Scales in the United States Supreme Court, and Plaintiff in Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. He's a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly, and his latest article is Clarence Thomas's vacation scandal shouldn't fade from memory. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the change in the public support away from the well-funded, politically connected, vocal and often fanatical minority wanting more guns and no restrictions in favor of the rights of the majority of Americans to be free from gun massacres happening almost daily in schools, churches, malls and theaters. To the B, the support, not the president with government lame. Put me on a slow moving parliamentary hacking bandwagon. You can put me little ass in the grave. Every time you want it, I'll be live. Bring a date. I mean, computer when it's over, press save. So you can be the president. I'd rather be the Pope. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Bussey, who is a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industries Person of the Year Award. He is an environmental advocate who served in many leadership roles for conservation organizations, including as an advisor to the United States Senate Sportsman's Caucus and the Biden presidential campaign. Currently, he provides consulting services to progressive organizations with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization. And he's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Bussey. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Uh, it's good to be here today. Well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. And with gun massacres becoming almost a daily occurrence in the NRA's America, it would seems like we've reached the point where you can't ring the wrong doorbell, you can't drive up the wrong driveway, get in the wrong car that you think is yours, or if you're a six-year-old, fetch a basketball that rolled into a neighbor's yard without getting shot. So when is enough enough? Well, we're far past the when is enough enough. Um, you know, it's, it is a frightening thing. And, and 
the reason it's so frightening is because the whole system is built upon fear. Fear is what drives what, you know, fear is very profitable in a political setting for half of the political aisle because it drives people to do and vote in irrational ways. Sadly, it drives people to buy guns and be fearful of their neighbors and then do irrational things, uh, dangerously irrational, like, you know, um, shoot a 16-year-old honor student on your front step. So is there then a kind of, I mean, <laughs> putting it in biblical terms, it's like the three horsemen of the apocalypse. You've got Justice Scalia responsible for the Heller decision, Rupert Murdoch for purveying fear, and Wayne LaPierre of the NRA for providing the guns that are in response to this kind of paranoia. Yeah, well, you certainly do. And it, it's, it, I think, you know, the, the Bruin decision um, that came out, you know, Justice Thomas's uh, now famous decision that came out in June, which is just a day apart from, from the Dobbs decision, is in a lot of ways the same kind of thing in that I, I think that the right side of the aisle and, and specifically the gun industry n never really thought they would be the dog that would catch that car. Now they're not quite sure what to do with it and they can't turn it off. Um, now the, the sort of radicalized, very loud vociferous forces that are driving the firearms industry to do ever more egregious things in the way they market and sell. Um, those are the same, you know, same forces on the right that are driving the Republican Party to do ever more egregious things that you never thought would happen. And once, you know, once an entity like that is beholden to a radicalized base, I don't I don't think there's any control anymore. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I can tell you I don't have a lot of hope for it getting a lot better in the very near term. So, Ryan, is there a way, though, to recapture the Second Amendment, which says a a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. That's the predicate. Heller, Scalia, turned that on its head. And then Bruin made it even worse. Heller allowed guns in the home, anywhere and everywhere. And Bruin allowed guns on the street, anywhere and everywhere. And it's worth noting that in the state of Texas from 1871 to 1995, it was illegal to carry firearms in public. So these... Uh, decisions have had such a detrimental effect, but can you kind of recapture, can you start a movement to basically recapture the, the real meaning of the Second Amendment? Because these people that on the gun proliferation side cite the Second Amendment as their kind of Bible. Yeah, I think I, think I have two answers for you. First off, we live in a country where the Second Amendment says what the last few judges say it says, right? I mean, you and I can have a view of the Second Amendment interpreting it, but what real all that really matters right now are what five justices on the Supreme Court say it means. And right now it's as you've enumerated, um, they they believe it it means certain things. Um, so from that stand and that's a long process, right? That those well, six justices that voted that way, that it took a long time for the right to stack the court in that favor. Um, it would take it an equally long time for the left to remedy that, I suspect. So a bit pessimistic, perhaps on that front. And my the second part of my answer, 
is a bit dark, but perhaps more optimistic on um, remedying our course. I think that absent, you know, some sort of um, really noticeable shift in policy, which I don't see happening, it's going to get so it's going to get so bad. Um, the news is going to get so rife with the things that you've seen and and rightfully um, been distressed about that the general public will rise up and demand something be changed. I, you know, I'm 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 just here to warn you that the things that you mentioned leading into this segment um, are not going to decrease in frequency. No. Um, in fact, they're going to increase in frequency. And the question will be, will the general public stand for that? So, you know, the guy in from the casino in, in Las Vegas, I, I can't remember how many people he killed, but he it was like 50 or something, and a lot more were wounded. Yeah, more than uh, 50, almost between five and 600 wounded, yes. Yeah. So what happens then if somebody in one one incident shoots 100 or 200 people? You don't see a, a threshold. I don't. Um, I don't. I don't think that those sorts of things will shift the basic argument at current because the art that for the people on the far right of the second amendment debate, the reasoning that is being used now is we must own these guns. You have a patriotic duty to own these guns because you must prepare for at all times, your patriotic duty as a citizen to undertake civil war against your government or against, you know, quote unquote, um, <laughs> federal bureaucrats that you don't agree with, right? Like it's it's the insurrectionist theory of the Second Amendment. Um, and so no level of ancillary violence or bad outcomes or anything that happens from the pressurization of that system is going to unconvince those people that they must own these guns out of some weird patriotic duty to, to, to you know, go to war with their fellow citizens. I don't see that happening. But just going back to the Second Amendment and well-regulated militia being necessary for the uh, for the security of a free state, and I I sound like a broken record, but we are neither secure nor free, and we can't go to the movies, we can't go to church, kids can't go to school, people can't go to a mall without being massacred. That seems to be permeating the consciousness of the majority of Americans. So basically, is the situation then, Ryan, that the public kind of zeitgeist doesn't matter here in terms of this minority of zealots and peculiar justices on the Supreme Court who, you know, they've given us decisions like Dobbs, and which is against the public majority, and guns against the public majority, Bruin and Heller and Citizens United, turning our politics into a money machine. So they seem to be in a different universe. I, that, that, that's pretty clear. In other words, the public's already there, isn't it, Ryan? So yeah, well, yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. I think, um, in fact, I was speaking about this with a friend earlier today. There has been a noticeable shift in the last eighteen months um, in our, I think, in our public discourse and in in the sort of general feeling, um, such that it is in the public. Yes, the general public is there. Do I? Do I think that the Supreme Court will continue to give the middle finger to public sentiment for some time on on Bruin and other topics? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think they're going to do it with a smile on their face. At least uh, many of them are. Um, however, these things change because the public rises up for a long enough time and eventually demands that they change. That's what that's that's the only way that um, you know we've progressed as a society. When we you know we that's how the environmental movement came along. That's how civil rights came along. That's so. 
it, I believe that it is starting to happen. And that's why I often argue with um, air quotes here, you know, really devoted gun friend, gun, you know, gun nut friends of mine. And I tell them I am the true Second Amendment patriot because I want to maintain the system such that it is where we maintain our rights. But that means that we must have a commensurate amount of responsibility that goes along with our rights. And absent that responsibility, all of our rights, especially the one that many, many purport to believe in the most, the Second Amendment, those are all at risk if you're not willing to do the responsible things, meaning support social norms, appropriate regulation. All, like, I mean, imagine what would happen to cars. You say, I love cars so much, I want no laws. <laughs> I mean, it's silly to think about, but that's how fast would it un unravel? And so I think um, the general public is, is, is going to demand these things. And the question will be, how cooperative will responsible gun owners be in helping forge those solutions? And how long will it take? Right, and you mentioned cars. Now it turns out that the leading cause of death among children and teenagers in America is guns, not car accidents. So let's talk, Ryan, about your book, Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. The book begins, you say in the beginning of the book, I am responsible for selling millions of guns. Now, it turns out, of course, you were vice president of sales for Kimber, and I take it that the turning point for you was Sandy Hook because the kids that were massacred there were the same age as your kids. Is that is that what happened? That was certainly, you know, certain really certainly one of the turning points for sure. It was where it was the point at which in my career I realized how singularly devoted to just vitriol and hate and commercial success the NRA had become and how tight a grip they had on the industry. A week after Sandy Hook, when LaPierre did his famous come out, you know, the only thing that stops a good guy with a, or a bad guy with a gun is a good guy, which is that emanated after Sandy Hook. It wasn't just me. There were a lot of people in the industry that looked around and said, you know, holy hell, is this for real? Um, and the thing is, it was for real. And that's when I realized, and nobody from the industry although they were internally quite critical of LaPierre and the NRA stances, nobody publicly said a word. And that's when I knew, oh my God, like, the, you know, these are intertwined. And yes, I, I did sell millions of guns. I worked at a gun company. I still own lots of guns and I use guns and my boys were shooting in a competition last week and I'm proud of that and, and want to continue that. That does not mean I don't want responsible laws. That does not mean I want our kids to be unsafe at school. That does not mean I'm um, down with industry advertising that in all but just overtly encourages insurrection and, and um, quote unquote, killing tyrants. No, I'm, I'm not down with that. So yeah, Sandy Hook was a turning point for me. And also at the 2010 NRA convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, apparently you saw this large poster advertising the uh, Bushmaster AR-15, and the caption to the poster said, consider your man card reissued. Interesting enough, uh, Ryan, a very similar ad now is playing on Russian television to get uh, young Russian men to join in the Putin's war in Ukraine, which obviously they're reluctant to do. Uh, mm. And it says something similar, you know, like be a man, join the army. Yeah, it, it, that doesn't shock me. And for those um, listeners who have not seen it, I encourage you to go Google what a, a Bushmaster man card is. And when you read it, when you read the words on that man card, what it what it encapsulates, if you can't see the direct line between that and what the MAGA movement, the far right radicalized movement 
um, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, the people that stormed the Capitol. If you can't see the direct line be- between those, then you need to get another another pair of glasses. It's it's extremely direct. The 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 line is quite straight. But it also includes congressmen. They some congressmen have had Christmas cards next up against the Christmas tree. The entire family bristling with AR-15s and other military-style weapons. And there's even an AR-15 pin that congressmen wear. Yeah, well, this goes to the point, um, a lot of people ask me why we can't pass, you know, basic, quote-unquote, common-sense stuff that that has broad bipartisan support. For instance, if you think about some of those bills like um, universal background checks, right, polls in the mid to high 80s. The reason those things don't pass is because of the devotion and the totem worshiping that you just described. It's really not about particular issues for the GOP. Guns, and specifically the AR-15 and the sort of cultish devotion for it, are really the central totem now of the far right. And again, it's not an issue thing. It's a, it's it's in part of the DNA. And so as you, you think it would be easy to pass those sorts of 82% polling issues, but it's not because that's attached really to the DNA. It's part of the existence. I think if you pulled the gun out of the middle of Marjorie Taylor Greene's pictures and Lauren Boebert's pictures and the various others, including the Tennessee congressman and the Kentucky congressman who posed with the, you know, Massey who posed with the M60 and his kids. Like if you pull that out of the GOP, their sort of worldview crumbles because their worldview is, is an authoritarian intimidation, um, shut the other side up, do it whatever it takes to make your points. It doesn't matter if the other side even gets a chance to vote. Like that's centered around intimidation, and there is no better symbol and totem of that than the AR-15. Well, I've mentioned the notion of the three horsemen of the apocalypse being Justice Scalia, Rupert Murdoch, and Wayne LaPierre. We touched on both LaPierre and Scalia. What about Murdoch? I mean, Fox News, for example, the 16-year-old black kid that was shot for ringing the wrong doorbell in Kansas City, the guy that shot him, the 85-year-old, apparently, according to his grandson, spends his entire day watching Fox News. And the grandson said he became more and more paranoid because Fox News pervades this notion that, that, as Trump said in his 2016 inauguration, you know, American carnage. Yeah, I think... I I definitely do not downplay the role of Fox and uh, well Fox used to own it right the right wing media machine now it's it's diversified a little bit into OAN and Newsmax and several spots on the web and um, but I don't think any of this happens I don't think we're in this position I definitely don't think um, you know that young kid in Kansas City gets shot without Fox News I mean obviously it's not the only component but you the, the you can't infuse this level of fear and hatred into a populace without a very effective communication machine. And Fox is that they are, I mean, think of what you will think what you will of them, but they are effective. Sure. But combined with Wayne LaPierre that wants to put a gun in everybody's hand, if ginning up paranoia and providing the means to strike out, you know, either (laughs) irrationally in most cases, I mean, uh, when I see these guys, you know, like the Proud Boys, you know, with their full camo and Kevlar and all bristling with the AR-15s, etc., I ask myself, what in God's name are you so afraid of? Is there any way that we can change the culture 
So young boys don't see guns as the means to settle disputes and that somehow, can you make the case that it's kind of cowardly to be one around in the streets of America, it's bristling with weapons and so, you know, what are, what are you afraid of? Are the Martians going to land? What is the problem? I don't have to make the case for that. It is cowardly. <laughs> you don't, there's no case to be made. Like, that, that's the most fragile, cowardly thing you could, you could do, yet it's propagated and celebrated by the right. I think it is in, incredibly fragile. Um, and I, I, I think we can change it. You know, there are, frankly, it wasn't very long ago in the, in the firearms industry itself, none of that would have been tolerated because it, 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 it is so obviously dangerous and fragile. And so we don't have to dream up some far off futuristic place where those sorts of actions aren't tolerated. We just have to go back to a few, heck, 15 years ago in the industry, the industry leaders wouldn't allow that. Firearms industry leaders wouldn't allow that. Like it's not a far off thing, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it can be done. Now, in this place, have we come too far? Are people too angry? Are we too divided? Are we too polarized? That's a tough question. And so the real answer is probably it's going to take a while to fix it. Um, but we've changed big cultural things. Think of cigarette smoking from the early 90s to now. We haven't banned it. It didn't go away. You can still buy cartons of cigarettes if you want and maybe smoke on a Friday night if things are particularly, you know, um, just right for you. So, you know, the action and and the ability is still there. But we have massively changed the culture in and around smoking. Did it make it go away? Did it uh, remove all bad outcomes? No. But we, we do. We did what you're supposed to do in a functioning democracy. We made things marginally better instead of making them marginally worse. And I think those sorts of actions are possible around guns as long as we don't let it get too far out of hand. Well, Ryan Bussey, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Ryan Bussey, who's a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award. He's an environmental advocate who has served in many leadership roles for conservation organizations, including as advisor to the United States Senate Sportsman's Caucus and the Biden presidential campaign. Currently, he provides consulting services to progressive organizations with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization and is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the focus in Sudan is on getting U.S. and European nationals out while average Sudanese citizens face starvation and bombs and bullets from a fratricidal war between two warlords tearing the country apart to grab all the spoils. To the town of our free road, a stranger one fine day. Hardly spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. It was early in the morning when he rode into the town. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Leko Tongan, who is a professor of international and intercultural studies and political studies at Pitzer College. He was born and raised in South Sudan, and his publications include Pan-Africanism and Apartheid, African-American Influence in U.S. Foreign Policy, and The Political Economy of National Planning in the Sudan, Determinants and Choices and Priorities, And he is working on a new book titled Planning the Tragedies, Political Economy and Development Policies, Genocides and the Breakup of Sudan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lego Tongan. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Ian. So when you say you're born in South Sudan, that's only recently become a country only a few years ago. So you actually, technically you were born in Sudan, right? That's right. And in fact, that is what is represented in my, uh, my uh, what I call, uh, passport. Right. The birthplace is indicated as uh, Sudan. So, and of course, South Sudan, since it was the newest country formed and got its independence, what, several years ago, it's been involved in a bloody civil war largely because the two main leaders and warlords couldn't agree. And But the same thing's now happening in Sudan itself, where so what's going on there in terms of this battle between the two generals who worked together in a coup when they seized control of Sudan in 2021, and now you have Degalo, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, which came grew out of the Janjaweed militia in Darfur. Mm-hmm. So they're an absolutely unsavory bunch, and then of course you've got. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Burhan. Uh, Burhan. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? Same, it's the same thing. It's generals wanting all the spoils and not wanting to share them. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you just have summarized the key issues really that are involved here. But just to um, uh, respond to what you're um, suggesting or what you're saying, uh, let me just uh, invoke you know, this proverbial saying which goes, uh, you know, the chicken has come home to to roost, and I think that is what is happening in um, uh, in the current crisis in the Sudan. And I think your comparison, actually, what uh, what has been happening in South Sudan, is really what is also happening in um, not in uh, Sudan right now. Okay. Uh, to perhaps understand what is going on, I like to uh, break it into two parts, namely the internal conditions that have given rise to this conflict, uh, why these two generals are fighting each other, and then second, the external also dimension, namely the forces that are from outside influencing this conflict. So the two generals, in a sense, uh, were appointed by Bashir, the previous dictator of Sudan, who ruled the country for 30 years. So the both generals actually were appointed by him. Um, now, they, what I call the RSF was actually a product of both Al-Burhan and Bashir. And it was actually formed in order to carry out, I'm sure most of our, perhaps older people are familiar of what happened in Darfur, but they were actually created as Janjaweed, namely uh, the devil on the horse, that is an Arabic word. And so Dagalo, who is the head of this uh, RSF, uh, was actually a creation of Bashir. Uh, 
And so what happened then was that in 2013, uh, Bashir actually elevated them, this, this group, to that position of uh, RIS, namely what I call um, sort of... It's called Rapid Support rapid, Forces. Right, the Rapid uh, Response Forces. Right. right. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was formed effectively in 2013. Okay. Now one has to understand what was behind Bushi really elevating it to that position. Bushi realized that his relations with the National Army, the Sudan Armed Forces, uh, was to some extent tenuous, and it was actually possible that uh, that force might carry out a coup against him. Okay. And so he didn't trust the National Army. And he said he put much of his effort into um, uh, the RSF, namely that this is like a group or a force that would protect him, even though it was initially created, of course, to carry out the war in uh, Darfur, the genocide that was uh, committed by this group. Now, um, what happened in 2019 was that uh, there was a popular uprising against uh, Bushir. And that uprising basically was uh, due to economic crisis within the country, but also to a great extent, uh, 30 years of Bushir rule uh, was too much now for, <laughs> for, for, for the Sudanese. Eh? And perhaps one should note here that um, Sudan actually had this sort of uh, normalizing, really, military coups. Military coups have been occurring in Sudan since 1958. In fact, two years after its independence in 1956. So uh, uh, the popular uprising was basically, we are fed up. We need now to return to a civilian government. We need democracy. And so these two generals who are actually working for Bashir uh, decided that they would support the popular uprising, which was, again, um, uh, bloody. I mean, there were a lot of people killed, definitely. Uh, And they were the ones who were carrying out this killing, especially General uh, Al-Burhan. So uh, they went with the popular, these two generals went with the popular um, uprising, and so they overthrew Bushir. Uh, and Bushir, of course, uh, is now in jail. He has been waiting, I mean, has been put in jail uh, to be actually um, taken to um, ICC in uh, The Hague in, in the Netherlands. Uh, so now what happened when these two people, I mean, these two generals got together? Yeah. So in 2000 and 21, or when they actually took over in 2019, okay, uh, there was a decision that they were going to have actually a civilian government. And this was, this was really a response uh, to the civilian uprising, uh, namely that, you know, we'll have uh, a civilian government. And so the two generals, in a sense, worked together to bring back civilian government in the Sudan. Now, um, you know, and this is perhaps something <laughs> that we're not familiar with, once somebody tastes power, especially military people, and usually we say when they sit on that, uh, on that uh, uh, what I call, um, 
that that uh-huh. chair, you know, power, uh, it is very difficult for them to leave it. So uh, once they were there and they agreed that they would have civilian government, they set up this civilian government supposedly for three years, after which there would be elections. And so during the three years, the military and the civilian government will work together. It will be like co-ruling the country together. And so the three years was coming closer, and again, uh, they have tasted this power, and they decided that actually they don't want the civilian government to be established. And so both of them, in 2021, um, October, uh, overthrew the civilian government, namely eliminated it from that um, sort of cohabitation that they established. Uh, no longer they didn't want that civilian government. And so that then started, in a sense, the competition between the two generals. The competition is in terms of who would be the, the head, the president of the Sudan, uh, between the two. And that led to, um, I would say, in fact, the current crisis, namely that uh, they begin to rival and building up, basically preparing in a sense for a conflict. And that, of course, is what we see today. It is but, the competition as to who would be the president of the Sudan. And so during this period from 2021 to the current, to 22, uh, they were building up. And uh, in a sense, the problem uh, the, the prob- that I said earlier that the chicken has come to roost or has come home to roost is because um, Dagalo or Hamiti was a creation of the of uh, the current general who is competing with him, and of course as I noted um, also President Bashir. Okay, so this this competition in a sense is between a militia that was established in order to, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, carry out the atrocities in Darfur and the National Army, which uh, the two, I mean, uh, General Al-Buhan is the chief, in a sense. And so what you have today really is uh, a competition for who is going to be the, uh, the head of the president of the Sudan. The problem that arose as to why this conflict emerged is that Al-Buhan, the general of the National Army, wanted to integrate RSF into the National Army. And Dagalo or um, Hamiti uh, feared that if they were integrated without any arrangements about his position, uh, he would be eliminated. And probably that was the intention, really, of General Al-Buhan. Namely that in order to get rid of him in this kind of competition, this is a guy actually who has no military really training. Uh, he became a military person through uh, the recruitment that Bashir carried out in Darfur. So uh, uh, um, Al-Burhan, in a sense, viewed him as somebody really who was not at this level in terms of military qualification or military attainment. You know, as, 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 as a general. And so it was in this context that Dagalo feared the integration of his forces into the National Army.
And so this is really what uh, led to this outbreak of the conflict between the two. And all the while, the Saudi Arabians and the Gulf Emirates supported both of them. Sisi in Egypt supports Al Burhan, right? Uh, yes, this is the external dimension. Uh, this is how then um, the array of external forces uh, have come into uh, to have a play in this conflict. Uh, Al Burhan, uh, General Burhan, interestingly, was. <laughs> a classmate of the current Egyptian dictator, General Assisi. Uh, they were in the same military um, academy in Cairo. And so naturally, one would understand that they would have close relations. Namely, Egypt is likely to support him, uh, given that relationship that they had. Okay. So you have Egypt uh, supporting um, Al-Burhan. And interestingly enough, Israel also is supporting Al-Burhan. And this might be linked to the uh, Israeli, you know, attempt to uh, have um, uh, to have disagreements with the Arab countries in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, namely Egypt and Sudan was one of them. What is referred to as the Abraham Agreements which included uh, United Arab Emirates, you know, the Emirates, uh, which signed up. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been resisting that. But Sudan under Burhan um, went along, actually, with that idea of uh, Israel having relations with the Sudan, something which was opposed, actually, by the Sudanese people, uh, given the sympathies that they have towards uh, the Palestinians. So that is uh, two of them. Then uh, the Chinese also have interest there. The Chinese have investment in the Sudan, uh, very extensive investment, especially in the oil industry. And um, uh, so that is, uh, uh, one would argue, in fact, uh, extensive Chinese relations with uh, General Abuhan. Now, the U.S. and um, EU, I would say, have sympathy for General Abuhan. Because, again, U.S. relations with Egypt is very close, and so definitely um, uh, Egyptian support of Burhan is likely to um, uh, win some sympathy from the U.S. for um, uh, Burhan. So you have that. Now, on the other hand, uh, General Hamati somehow has uh, enjoyed relations between uh, UAA, you know, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Libya. And Libya, of course, as you, uh, perhaps our listeners know, Libya really has not yet become really a cohesive country. So the support, when we say comes from Libya, is from this um, uh, general, uh, Khalifa Haftar, uh, who controls much of eastern uh, Libya, basically. This is, in fact, a warlord uh, who has uh, frustrated, in fact, the unification of Libya, in a sense. Uh, and and uh, General Haftar is also connected to this uh, Russian group called the Wagner Group, uh, which has become, again, well-known now as... Um, a mercenary group, actually, that is um, involved now in many African countries. And their involvement is largely in terms of um, uh, gaining um, 
you know, mining of, of uh, gold in particular uh, in the Sudan. In fact, they are, they are well established in the Sudan, especially Eastern Sudan, near Port Sudan. Uh, they are also involved in Mali, uh, Central African Republic. And so um, General Hamiti is getting supposedly weapons through uh, Wagner Group from the Russian uh, military. So that is, again, this uh, combination of supporters of Ham- uh, Hamiti. Yeah. Laka, yeah. we're, we're running out of time, and uh-huh. just wanted to, I just wanted to finish up with the focus that we hear in the news, of course, is on evacuating Americans, and for some reason or other, there's 16,000 Americans in the, the country, and we know that also Britain, France, and China have have people they want to evacuate. The United States, Canada, South Korea, and Japan, and the Netherlands have all sent planes down to neighboring countries. So I, there seems to be a sort of double standard in the sense that the, the Western countries and the Chinese want to get their people out. At the same time, the Sudanese people are suffering because the fighting is getting worse, the bombing and the shooting is getting worse, and people basically have a choice between dying of being shot or blown up by a bomb or dying of hunger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it is horrific, certainly. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the issues that we are trying to address in our meeting today was uh, expressing our um, really emotions about what is going on there. Now, I have relatives in Khartoum, and um, uh, perhaps there are uh, some of the victims that are, um, you know, their bodies are rotting in the street uh, or uh, in hospitals, definitely. Uh, so I think they, you know, when you have these conflicts like this, of course, uh, countries tend to take care of their own citizens and they don't give any uh, regards to those that are suffering, you know, uh, within the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, people are trying to leave, actually. Uh, a lot are trying to run away from Khartoum, going to other areas outside. But it is very difficult because there is no means of transportation per se. Yeah. What actually came out recently, I mean, just not long ago, is that if you go in a bus, okay, you are safer. If you uh, take a private car, you are in danger because you are likely to be robbed uh, because the assumption is that you have a private car, therefore you are, you know, you are, you are wealthy. And so that is this dilemma that confronts uh, people who are trying to escape actually from Khartoum. Uh, it is estimated that something like 20,000 have fled uh, into Chad as refugees. And most likely there will be you know, more perhaps coming to South Sudan uh, and possibly Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia, which would be uh, complicating really the conditions in those countries like uh, Ethiopia because there are uh, estimated to be 1 million refugees in the Sudan. Sure, and there's a civil war going on there too. Right. So, so it's a um, it's a very uh, the whole region is a, it's a tinderbox. Absolutely. Um, and when you say you had a discussion today, that's a discussion with the what's it called, the Sudanese Scholars Association. It is called Sudan Studies Association. Sudan Studies Association. Studies Association. It is actually it was established in 1981. It's actually a long um, right, right. Uh, and and. Um, uh, we have been active, you know, and in fact, this crisis has brought us together in particular. 
at this juncture uh, in order to really understand what is going on uh, at home. Definitely. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Lucky Tongun. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it, too. Thank you for having us. And again, I've been speaking with Leka Tongan, who's a professor of international intercultural studies and political science at Pitzer College. He was born and raised in South Sudan, and his publications include Pan-Africanism and Apartheid, African-American Influences on U.S. Foreign Policy, and The Political Economy of National Planning in the Sudan, Determinants of Choices and Priorities. He's working on a book titled Planning and Tragedies, Political Economy of Development Policies, Genocides, and the Breakup of Sudan. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half